Today's podcast is brought to you by Horizons Resolve Adaptive Asset Allocation ETF, which trades on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the ticker symbol HRAA and is sub-advised by Resolve Asset Management. HRAA is an alternative fund whose investment objective is to seek long-term capital appreciation by investing directly or indirectly in major global asset classes, including, but not limited to, equity indices, fixed income indices, interest rates, commodities, and currencies. HRAA gains exposure to these asset classes by investing in derivative instruments that may include future contracts and forward agreements and securities. HRAA will take long or short positions, using up to a maximum of three times leverage in asset classes such as equity indices and fixed income asset classes, commodities, currencies, volatility indices, and other alternative asset classes. HRAA could provide balance to your portfolio by harnessing three unique investment styles. The first is an actively managed global risk parity portfolio to provide maximally diversified global exposure in optimal risk balance. The second is a proprietary systematic global macro process that attempts to profit from short-term market moves, going both long and short on more than 50 global markets. Finally, HRAA uses a dynamic tail protection overlay that attempts to profit from large moves in volatility markets. To learn more about this, please visit www.horizonsetfs.com HRAA to read about the ETF's investment objectives and important disclaimers about the risks associated with an investment in the ETF. Hello and welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by Adam Butler, Mike Philbrick, and Rodrigo Gordillo of Resolve Asset Management Global. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left-brain robots, right-brain poets, and everything in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey. Welcome, Andy Constant, and welcome to everyone who's joining us to this Friday's Riffs. Um, without um, bearing the lead, we've got Andy Constant here today, and um, probably Mike. You should do your spiel before we get started. Well, yeah. First, first of all, cheers. Cheers. Mm-hmm. Happy Friday, everybody. And as always, uh, this is not investment advice. We don't know your personal situations, and uh, and uh, so we're just going to have a wonderful, wide ranging, sometimes deep and interest, hopefully very interesting conversation. And uh, that is your warning not to take investment advice from three dudes on a YouTube channel at four o'clock on a Friday. Well said. I think Mr. we've got Klein that Sox. wrapped. Exactly. <laughs> um, so with that said, welcome, Andy, and thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to it. Yeah, actually, I've been really looking forward to this episode because um, I've been following your feed on Twitter for some time, and um, I have... Uh, poke through some of your damp spring commentaries, which, uh, which are great. And um, I think you bring a really novel framework to, uh, to how to think about markets, especially on sort of a trader's timeline. Um, so I definitely want to get into some of the details of that. But before we do, I, how I'd really like to sort of start this conversation is for maybe you, you can kind of um, hit the major headlines of your career arc. And then I want to maybe stop at each point on the journey and, and dig into some of the lessons, experiences and wisdom that you glean from, from each of those stops, but maybe let's outline those stops and then we can go one by one. Sure. Um, briefly, I um, spent 17 years at Solomon brothers, um, 
in uh, equity, equity derivatives and convertible bond trading um, started in 86 and left in 2003. At the time, I was running the um, global equity derivatives franchise for um, what had become Citigroup. Um, and I decided to start my own hedge fund with uh, a couple of Solomon fixed income traders. At the time, my specialty was um, equity relative value, um, convertible bonds, capital structure arbitrage, risk arbitrage, and um, volatility trading across many different dimensions. Um, and so I brought that to my hedge fund. Um, we launched, uh, my partners all did various forms of fixed income, ar um, arbitrage, relative value in vol and mortgages and credit and government bond, ARB. Um, and um, after four years, uh, the partnership didn't survive, but the firm did fairly well. Um, thankfully, it didn't, we got lucky actually in that it didn't survive um, long before the uh, financial crisis. We were out of business and the money had been returned to our investors before the financial crisis. Um, but half of us wanted to carry on uh, with a better partnership. And so we, um, created a new fund and uh, our largest investor seeded that. And we had the objective of doing exactly what we had been doing at our prior fund, um, but our timing was terrible. We started fundraising in the uh, summer of 2007. And by November, uh, we had hardly put any money to work. By November, uh, we weren't getting a single meeting because people were in the midst of redeeming from the financial crisis, the beginnings of the financial crisis. So um, I missed the financial crisis. I was uh, managing my own money and looking for the next thing to do. Um, and what I had noticed um, throughout my career, both as a sell-side um, trader and um, you know, risk-taker and as a uh, hedge fund manager, that RV looked like beta when markets uh, were under stress. So whether that was 94, where mortgage arbitrage blew up, creating a whole crisis in um, all RV trading strategies to 98, when um, long-term capital blew up and did a similar thing. And then, um, then the financial crisis where, you know, some major opportunities and relative value just um, got completely trashed and had to be unwound. So I realized um, looking at RV that I really needed to understand how macro worked. And so thankfully I was able to get a job at what I think is the premier shop in terms of understanding how the world works. Uh, they're not always right, but they, their thinking is just phenomenal. And so I spent uh, a little over three years at Bridgewater Associates. Um, and um, then after that, um, we did great. I did, I did well there. Um, it was incredibly hard work. And um, the culture is a challenge. Um, to make it three years as, a, uh, as an outside hire is extremely rare. Um, but I did move on and um, started at Brevin Howard. Um, and Brevin Howard was also, Alan is one of the great macro thinkers of his time. Um, and um, joining him, I got to see a completely different way of approaching macro, which if you guys want to come back to on both that difference, we can talk about we that. We definitely do. Um, yeah. 
But um, that lasted about three years. Allen's fund, unfortunately, during the time had seen a lot of redemption. And so by the time I left, um, the staff had grown in New York, where I was located, had fallen from 50 to three. Um, and so Alan generously uh, helped me start Damp Spring and is still a major client of mine, um, providing um, what I had been doing for him, which was what I would broadly call his macro strategy um, for his portfolio managers. I provided that for um, him as a third-party research that he helps start up for me. Um, and now I have a wide range of clients. Um, and then I guess about a year ago, I started levering what I was thinking about markets into the occasional tweet. And somehow my voice struck a, co- a chord with an audience and I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the process. And I started interacting with people who I never ever would have known. And now, you know, they know me via my Twitter handle, not personally, but we have great conversations on in front of everyone everybody about what's going on in the markets. And thankfully my, you know, my, um, my following has grown to about 36,000 and, um, you know, it's been a great journey. And so some of those people have now become clients as well. Yeah. That's a tremendous story. Um, so if you don't mind, I want to pick up, um, uh, at your time at at Bridgewater as, as kind Mm -hmm. of a place to start. And, um, so what I'd love to do is, is dig into the um, sort of base level framework that that Bridgewater used to think about macro and think about um, investing using macro information. Um, and then I want to do the same thing for Brevin Howard. And then it, it would be great if we could try to sort of um, pull together some common threads from both of those experiences. And then sure. um, maybe that'll help lead us into how that informs some of what you currently do. So maybe let's let's start with Bridgewater and what you learned there. <clears throat> sure. Um, so everything. Um, Bridgewater was just an incredible education. They spend a tremendous amount of resources and uh, uh, at all levels, including Ray and Greg and Bob, the CIOs, in um, teaching and explaining and reviewing and testing um, everyone's understanding of you know their framework. And also challenge so that they can get challenged on their framework. Um, the one thing I would say about Bridgewater, it's a firm that is extremely committed to uh, marginally improving their process at every moment. So every moment of everyone's work time at, at Bridgewater is about making the system better. And so when you said, what's their framework. Well, you know, it's constantly evolving um, and it needs to, to keep up with um, the competition. Um, This is a highly uh, competitive market um, where alpha is very hard to get to begin with. Um, And so they're constantly- Especially in scale. Right. And then then you take into the account that they- you know, if they want to shift from 100% long bonds to 100% short bonds for some reason, they have to sell, you know, 150 billion bonds. It's a lot of bonds. Which is a lot of bonds to move. <laughs> and, you know, it doesn't take, it takes, it. you know, QT is about reducing bond purchases by 50 billion. Um, that They're going to do that over a month. So you can see that, you know, there's some serious issues around um, um, alpha at that scale. 
and the horizon one has to find that alpha. Um, and I, again, I think at every level from, you know, how they execute the next tick of the next 10 lot of um, futures that they're buying to um, the highest level issues around portfolio construction and signals, directional signals and macroeconomic data um, is that whole canvas is constantly being worked on. Right. And um, Ray is famous for his um, breaking down the investment portfolio into kind of a diversified risk premia portfolio, which he calls all weather and others have, have since sort of adopted this idea of global risk parity um, and an alpha portfolio. And, and I remember at some point around 2011, 2012, he brought the two together and, and called it the optimal portfolio, right? So right. What, what, is the, what is the basis of his kind of the thinking behind his beta portfolio? And then maybe we'll get into some of the, um, some of the data that, um, that Bridgewater keeps a close eye on, for example, to inform their, their macro trading. But, but let's start with the beta first. Sure. Um, I wanted to just say that um, the optimal portfolio, um, I left in 2013 and it hadn't been invented yet. So um, I'm not, I have no understanding of what that is, I could guess, but um, yep. it's not my thing. Um, but in terms of, you know, the, the one thing that um, Bridgewater really focuses on is making sure that investors are paying for alpha and not paying for beta. Um, and so they have two, two products, one that is literally defined as pure alpha and the other is their beta product, which is, uh, as you mentioned, their all weather product and what they really, they're, they're, that's very important to them that they separate those two, um, because beta is, you know, beta is just market exposure. There's good beta and bad beta and how you choose to ex express market exposure. You know, there's lots of different opinions on how that can work and what's the best way to do it. But in the end of the day, it's market exposure over time that pays you a risk premium that you collect. And so whatever your form of beta is, anyone can do it. You just have to buy stuff um, and then hold it. Um, and that shouldn't, you shouldn't pay for that. You know, they, Bridgewater has a, you know, in basis points fee for its all weather um, exposures. Um, it's a bit sophisticated, but nonetheless, it is that. It is just trying to own assets and collect risk premium. Um, alpha is a completely different thing. Um, ignoring for the moment um, non-economic players who participate in markets, um, alpha is only gotten by um, taking somebody else's money. Um, you can't get alpha from the market. You have to get alpha from someone. And that person has negative alpha. And so it's a zero-sum game. And I, I mentioned that there are some non-economic players out there that perhaps provide alpha, um, like the Federal Reserve and currency intervention and a variety of other, not directly... What, well, let's just say this. These players are, are in the market um, participating in the pricing of assets, buying and selling assets, but their objective isn't to make P&L. Their objective is to make you know, larger economic um, 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 effects 
Um, so yeah, they're trying to achieve they, political objectives, right? And, and they so don't mind if there's monetary short-term yeah. losses, um, <clears throat> right? And so um, they can provide alpha, um, but in the end, it's taking from somebody else, and that person is really smart and trying to eat your lunch just as much as you're trying to eat theirs. And so um, staying ahead of the game is is the game. Do you the think that Red Queen syndrome? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I always wonder because, you know, there's a lot of people write, write newsletters. I know you do too. A lot of people do their own homework and, and have their own um, personal investment frameworks. They try to run money themselves. Um, they don't just invest directly in betas. They're, they're not just seeking balance and diversity like an all-weather portfolio, but they're trying to pick stocks. What, what kind of chances do you think a typical individual investor has to, to generate alpha in, in, in markets? Hmm. So um, I guess what I would say is this. Uh, passive index strategies or even passive buy and hold strategies. I'm a John Bogle type. I believe that um, the best way to own passive is passive because you're not paying transaction costs. And so if you layer in transaction costs into, you know, active managers who are saying, I'm going to buy this stock because it's cheap, which by the way, is a form of alpha. If they are correct when they buy a stock and they sell another stock and, you know, they, they outperform for alpha reasons, not just because they the long happens to be leveraged and the market goes up or, you know, other things that are just easy to do. Um, you'll find, I think the history says um, that uh, active management underperforms because they pay principally because they pay transaction costs. So let's start with that. And these are professional money managers. Um, mm-hmm. Individual money managers pay, individual investors pay higher transaction costs and Much I guess higher. what I would say, right? I guess what I would say is that it would be very hard for me to have confidence if I if I was sitting as an individual investor, um, knowing you know as much as some of them appear to know. Um, I would think it would be extremely hard to um, to generate consistent alpha through time after transaction costs and with. You know, there's this is a complex market, and so uh, the, and always has been, and so um, given the performance of professional money managers as alpha generators, it's just it's the odds are stacked heavily against um, everyone, <laughs> and more so the more transaction costs and the less understandings you have. Yeah, I mean, so, to your point about Bridgewater being you know one of the most sophisticated institutions in the world, dedicating hundreds of thousands of man hours a year to incrementally improve their investment process. And right. these are the very entities and agents that you're competing against, right? In, in the market. Yeah, so I mean, um, if they have a 0.8 sharp ratio on a particular strategy, which is a, you know, a, ret- a measure of your um, return versus risk, um, it's a home run for the year. If that's a meaningful, let's say bonds, um, and they can improve that ratio from 0.8 to 0.83. That's a grand slam for it's them. Massive. Not, only, yep. not only does it help them this year, but it helps them for the rest of their existence. 
until it decays back to lower numbers. But um, so they really invest in their improvement of their long-term alpha. So can we just, um, I want to pull on this thread about, about the beta and sort of the, the boggle head side of things. And okay, so we're going to be passive with some set of assets, but what we often observe is that that pacificity is a function of recency bias. And if we look now, you see this great predominance of US 6040, which was not mm-hmm. the case back in the mid, in the mid noughts. Um, it was a case of making sure you had maximum exposure across emerging markets and commodities. So, I mean, I guess there's, how do you conceive or what advice do you have for those who are trying to construct a beta with respect to how are they going to stick with it through the thick and thin of underperformance vis-a-vis some behavioral benchmark that they have? I mean, that that's really hard situation to address and it's not just retail i mean we're seeing that institutionally that institutions have been caught fairly flat-footed here with this inflationary impulse and have all but left their commodity exposures in the dust years ago sure so is it how do you think through that when you're thinking about the beta side of it or what advice would you give those out there well um so i think you have to start with this basic assumption that um, all that, and this is I'm not going to be theoretical at all. It's just say that all assets are fairly priced right this second. And then you say, how are those assets going to behave in all scenarios? And then you um, weight your asset allocation based on those. And um, you so what assets are you considering, Andy? Just 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 to just to pull well, I mean, a I think I think Bridgewater has a Bridgewater has a great box diagram for how they consider um, uh, uh, asset allocation for all weather. Um, I like those two dimensions. I think those are really the only two dimensions, which are um, growth expectations rising or falling and inflation expectations rising or falling. Um, and that's, you know, a basic framework, I think for everyone that does macro, but I think it's right. Um, and I, the 60, 40 box is the box, um, exposure, for instance, is just for one heavily pro growth and really, um, misses, um, um, inflation exposure. Um, and so not surprising that portfolio has massively underperformed. Listen, no portfolio of long assets has done well this year. Um, And there's a reason for that, which we can come back to. But um, 6040 has done a lot worse than a balanced beta portfolio. And I read um, Harry Brown's um, um, book about uh, the inflation proofing your portfolio, which I think was written in the late 70s, early 80s. And, you know, he was really the first one to have a sort of all-weather framework from, um, you know, back then. And now it's, you know, much more common. Uh, I think Bridgewater's still the number one in it, but much more common. Um, And that's, and it's also, I think, a little bit trendy now because people are recognizing they need exposure to gold, exposure to commodities, exposure to uh, um, tips, inflation protected um, um, bonds instead of just nominals and um, nominals, corporates and equities. 
Um, yeah, one actually, thing that a lot of people get wrong, I think, is sorry, Eddie, keep going. Yeah, that might that actually might be um, squeezing some of the uh, prices of various inflation um, pro-inflation assets up a little bit. And they that actually that actually might be an alpha opportunity as flows are <clears throat> chasing that type of um, that type of investment as they delever the sixty forty. Uh, but that. That's those are short term alpha type ideas. Um, longer term, that's you know the the way I do it is I go and look at how my portfolio is going to behave in in many many different environments and wait it. I want to talk about the infl- the inflation um, linked bonds for a minute because sure. my understanding is that Bridgewater doesn't just invest directly in tips, but they invest in break evens, right? So it's not it's not just a long tips portfolio, but but their inflation hedge is is a long break-evens portfolio, right? So long, long tips, short nominals. Is, is that right? Yeah. So I guess what I would say is um, I know way more than I can let on. Um, oh, okay. Fair enough. Say, no, that, that's totally I fine. would also say yeah. that um, Bridgewater is um, really focused on at 75, I don't know what they are now, $75 billion of um, alpha. They're really focused on liquidity. And I would say the break-even market is not liquid. Right. Gotcha. So, yeah. So, I mean, you can achieve these with, with inflation swaps and, and these and different sort of um, and der- and over the market derivatives in this one. Yeah. You know, it's an interesting thing, you know, where liquidity is, you know, people think the derivatives market adds liquidity. It really, it's conceptually really doesn't. Um, we can come back to why I think that, but, you know, you look at just regular nominal bonds, nominal bonds, nominal bond futures and nominal uh, and, and interest rate swaps, all are giving you exposure to, to treasury bonds, essentially. Interest rate swaps have a little other component to it, but um, you can't add those three things up and see what, and you know, the total quantity or volume or however you want to measure liquidity. Um, you can't add all three of those things up and get the total liquidity. It just doesn't work that way. It's right. a fraction of the sum. Um, yep. And so, you know, Bridgewater is very conscious, as I think most of the big houses are very conscious of, you know, where real liquidity is versus, um, you know, going into the swaps market, for instance, and expecting your 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 experience is going to be different than, you know, the than bond futures. Well, yeah, I mean, I guess your counterparties can take on some basis risk and try to lay off risk in, in, in different other different liquid markets and stuff. But in the end you know, you're taking risk in one direction or another. You're taking basis risk or you're taking liquidity risk and, and there's no getting around right. it. <clears throat> right. You need um, for it to- yeah. I also want to, you said that, that we could come back to why this environment has been, um, has sort of deflated all risky assets and how it's been impossible for a diversified long only portfolio to preserve um, returns this year. And I think it's worthwhile visiting this idea as well. So maybe walk us through how that works. Yeah, I mean, I think that's by far the most important thing that's been going on. Um, In uh, December 15th, um, Jay Powell had a short phrase in his um, press conference after the Fed um, meeting of that day and mentioned um, that they're looking at the balance sheet. And it was really just as innocuous as that. And I immediately tweeted um, that that was a game changer. It was not anticipated, and I'll tell you why, um, and it was a game changer. Um, December 29th, I wrote, uh, 
the um, drum beats of QT, which was my piece about what the impact on financial markets would be um, when QT started. Um, and at the time, it still didn't seem to matter. Asset prices had rallied almost through that date, um, really just a little tail off in um, December, uh, but really just an incredibly robust environment for all assets. Um, but then the minutes came out on January 4th and the world woke up. And from then on, all we have seen is um, front running of quantitative tightening. Um, and that's because um, quantitative tightening will result in um, the need for financial markets to absorb bonds that the Fed would have otherwise bought from the U.S. Treasury. And that'll start in June, June 1st. And so it, quantitative tightening has done nothing till to, to hurt assets either December 15th or January 4th because it hasn't even happened. In fact, the first quarter, there was still quantitative easing through mid-March. And that's actually buying bonds from the market, from the Treasury, that they would have otherwise had to sell. And that's... Um, you know, that was going on. So all of this has been front running. And what I mean by that is that um, in the world, um, you can collect um, essentially free money by letting somebody, if you have savings, if you have dollar savings or any currency savings, and, you, and somebody wants your dollar to consume or to invest um, in the real economy. Um, they uh, will issue a security. Um, and for that security, um, you're taking risk and you need to be rewarded for that. It's like, you know, is there any incentive if somebody comes up to you and says, I want, I've got, I'm going to flip a coin and pay you a 50-50 and we'll, we'll do a 50-50 payout. And you have the money and they want half of your money, either all your money or they'll give, you know, they'll give you twice your money. Um, you don't have any incentive to do that bet. There's no economic incentive to just bet without positive expected return. And so when somebody asks you for your, your, your cash savings, they need to compensate you for that. And that is through what we call risk premium. And all investments have it. Stocks, bonds, commodities, um, currencies really don't. Real estate. Uh, except, except emerging markets. And yes, real estate, all assets, anything that people will give you for your money that is um, an investment for you, um, pay you a risk premium just if you hold it. What people forget is that um, that risk premium that you collect each day is also can be also marked to market, meaning in certain environments, the um, risk premium you can receive is high. And in other environments, the risk premium you can receive is low. And so that fluctuation can have a big impact on asset prices. So when do risk premiums um, 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 contract? Well, they contract when, and um, they contract when, uh, for instance, you have quantitative easing in which the, treasure, the Fed is buying assets in the marketplace 
and they're competing with everybody else who has savings for these assets. And so there are less assets available to buy because the Fed's bought some. And that inflates assets prices. And that inflation is seen in essentially the contraction of what you would expect to earn for, from beta. And so that's what's happened for since quantitative easing started in um, 08, 09, and then rapidly happened um, with a massive quantitative easing that started in April of 2020, 2020. Um, and so that's coming to an end. Um, risk premiums need to expand because people need to be rewarded more to lever up their own risk to take on the U.S. Treasuries that the government is selling that uh, the Fed isn't buying anymore. Um, and so that's really what this whole thing has been about. This last you know, People think about the path of interest rates, the hiking of interest rates. It really hasn't been about that. It's just been getting set for what is going to be a supply and demand imbalance between those who have money and credit to, in, to offer invest to, to invest and those who need money um, foreign um, to, and are selling those investments. Um, and I think that's really all that's happened in the last. Um, and so what, what's happened? Every asset has gone down since then. Um, because global and, risk uh, premia have, have needed to expand because in anticipation right. of having to absorb either, you know, it, it, at some point, maybe even flows from the Fed into the market, but at the very least now from the treasury into the market because the Fed will no longer be absorbing the treasury issuance. Right. Um, and that's big enough. Um, you know, yeah, sure. It doesn't, the details of the, um, of the quantitative tightening are now, I think, in stone. And I think it'll really be, and I predicted these in January, but I think they'll really be, they'll stick to this. And that, that is this um, $95 billion um, cap. And so um, what that means is that um, they will, um, they get every day they get um, proceeds from redemptions of their existing inventory. Um, and up till today, up till June, they've reinvested those proceeds. Um, now each month, subject to this $60 billion cap on treasuries um, they, and 35 on mortgages, making 95 in total, they will um, not reinvest up to $60 billion. Um, and so $60 billion will expire, right? Because they're just, they're letting T-bills run off and, yep. and other notes. So that, that runs off, they expire, and typically they would now, be buying. If, if 70 ran off in that month, but 60 was the cap, they'd still reinvest $10 billion. Okay, that's, that's a good point. Right, gotcha. So they and still then on mortgages. Are, and mortgages yeah, are trickier. And mortgages are trickier because um, they politically they um, regret, I think, um, some more than others, the amount of mortgages they have in their inventory. Um, and also, um, uh, mechanically, these mortgages have, um, are, no, are not going to be prepaid anymore. Um, with interest rates this high, no one can refinance the Treasury's mortgage, the Fed's mortgage portfolio. And so, and they are 30-year, you know, amortizing bonds. Um, and so the prepayments are, sorry, um, the monthly um, proceeds 
just aren't large enough to take the mortgage so duration portfolio. Duration is lengthening down. on these mortgage on the mortgage portfolio, right? So, so right, they're and, not and, have and, the, and the cash flows just don't come off fast enough. So right. um, they're going to have to sell in the marketplace mortgages, and I think that's well understood. Yeah, but I'm the point you know, I'm making is I don't think they're going to change that. I don't think that the I don't think they're even if. Um, inflation picks up in September, which Mester's now pointing to, then the, the next time they're actually going to have a decision to make, um, at least today she said that, um, I don't think they're going to ever increase the speed of QT that beyond the $95 billion. I just It's possible, but I don't think they're going to pull that lever. And the reason why is um, just as QE was highly effective for inflating assets, um, QT is highly effective in, and we've seen it, in deflating asset prices. Just the front running has deflated asset prices. Um, but the linkage back to the economy um, is, um, you know, the goal is to, to reduce demand. Um, and the linkage for QT and QE has always been the wealth effect, which is the people that are experiencing uh, portfolio gains spend more, and the people who are um, experiencing portfolio portfolio losses um, consume less. It's weak. And the only reason why we ever use QE to um, bail out the economy in the last 10, 12 years is because interest rates were at zero and we didn't have any more levers. Um, but it was very, it wasn't particularly effective until 2020 in generating inflation. In fact, inflation undershot for most of the first 10 years of, you know, when QE started in 08. Um, so it's not a very strong mechanism to create inflation, and it's not a very strong mechanism to reduce inflation because of this weak linkage of the wealth effect. What really matters is height, and the Fed has repeatedly said this is uh, changing the borrowing and saving rate, um, you know, increasing deposit interest, which will take a, a, there'll be a lag before the banks ever do this, but money funds will start that transmission mechanism quickly. Just keeping money in the bank is actually going to be uh, more compelling than spending it, and that'll reduce demand. And that's just the short-term interest rate being hiked. Very effective. Mortgage rates have been impacted by the short-term interest rate going up a lot, um, which has, um, you know, made housing affordability lower. And so they really believe that to tame inflation, they're going to have to increase rates. And it's not about QT, though QT will do its job too. It just won't be as strong. But running off mortgages will obviously raise rates in the mortgage market um, to a yeah, greater but, degree than in the, in the general treasury market. Right. So right, yeah. that should help too. The mortgages should widen the mortgage basis between treasuries and mortgages, and that'll pass be passed on to the um, to the end mortgage um, user, the borrower. Right, got it. So we're expecting this to persist for for some time. They're gonna they're gonna run down their balance sheet. They're especially gonna make sure to run down their um, um, their mortgage book um, because there are members of there are decision makers that perceive that that their mortgage book is is uh, is much too large. Um, the other side of this equation, which you've commented on quite extensively, is 
the treasury, right? So, so to what extent is the treasury issuing uh, bills, notes, and bonds, and um, in what in what duration and at what time, right, is going to impact yeah. the liquidity conditions? So maybe it was walk us through that side of the equation. Yeah, sure. So um, the way I like to think about it is um, in liquidity terms. Um, the treasury has a budget to finance. It has. Um, bonds that are maturing that need to be, some of which the Fed owns, that need to be uh, refinanced. Um, and so it needs to sell securities. It's still running a budget deficit. We'll come back to that in a second, because that I think is very important. Um, and so they need to issue. And um, if they had to issue a trillion dollars of bills, they would... Um, you know, they, that would change the portfolio a lot. And there are some guidelines and things that prevent them from issuing only bills. But if they were to do such a thing, that would have a minimal impact on um, possibly even no impact on financial assets. On the other hand, if they mm -hmm. issued a trillion dollars of 30-year bonds, the 30-year bond would crash. Um, you know, they issue a couple hundred billion a year um, so of 30 years. So if they were to weigh on the curve, all that, um, they would, um, crash the 30 year, which would crash corporates, which would crash equities. And so those, those impacts are very important. So what are they doing is, so you have to ask yourself, okay, so what they might do, um, is, um, they have, the treasury has a different, political, different um, role than the Fed does. The Fed is trying to fight inflation. Um, the administration is trying to fight inflation. They're using gimmicky things like um, um, petroleum drops um, um, and SPR. Um, of the SPR, yep. And also um, scary things like Scary, politically potentially, you know, very uh, appropriate, but from an inflation standpoint, uh, misguided things like um, globally, this is happening, um, handing people who are buying gas credits, um, which um, saves them the money. And there's, it's a wealth transfer. I'm not making any judgment on that, but it doesn't reduce. In fact, it increases the demand for the commodity that's already in short supply. So, you know, administrations are going to do what they're going to do. Some are going to be gimmicky, some aren't. In Janet's case, she has a real legitimate lever. Um, and if she believes, which she's given no indication that she does believe this, but if she believes that um, by issuing long dated bonds, the wealth effect will fight inflation and that's attractive to her, she may go in that direction. On the other hand, Janet also has a, um, um, I think it's politically difficult to crash a stock market and get reelected. Um, and so those are, those are that the Fed doesn't have those concerns. It just needs financial stability and, you know, another 20% on the stock market doesn't matter to them, but it probably matters to, um, you know, the Democrats chances I think they've probably written off 2022, but for even 2024, they don't want a democratic administration to have a 
um, you know, a stock market crash. That's just very hard to recover from. So um, she has these, she has both sides to concern herself with. So then let's talk about um, briefly what she has done. And the answer to that is um, she has used her levers intelligently. Firstly, she has, um, um, while the Treasury was, while the Fed was still doing QE, um, she issued a lot of coupon bonds and a lot of bills in, the, in Q1. And she completely funded what's called uh, the Treasury General account, which is her, uh, essentially the government's checking account where they, where they spend the money. Um, they collect taxes in it and they um, use that account for spending. Um, and she funded that from what had, for all intents and purposes, was zero because, um, at the end of Q4 because the debt ceiling was in place and she couldn't issue more debt. Um, she really pressed out a lot of money and funded that. And it's almost a trillion dollars right now. Um, in... Um, uh, I guess February, late, late January, um, the quarterly refunding announcement came out and she had reduced coupons significantly. Um, and that's an important thing. It said, you know, we get QTs coming. We funded our, our checking account. Um, we're going to lay off the bond market a little bit. Um, but it was still, you know, so coupons have come down. Coupon issuance, long-dated treasury issuance has come down. Um, but then this very unusual thing has started to happen. And that is when you have um, high nominal GDP, um, and nominal GDP is not the reported number, it's the sum of the reported number plus inflation. So um, last quarter, we had a negative 1.4% annualized um, um, real GDP, but we had an 8% annualized inflation rate. And so the nominal GDP was, you know, six and a half-ish. Um, and taxes are paid in nominal dollars. And the, the, we really grew, not in a nominal sense, we really grew last quarter. And so our tax revenues have come in quite a bit, um, sorry, gone up quite a bit, um, while our budget hasn't changed. So what that means is our deficit has come down. And when our deficit comes down, our need to issue comes down. And so it turns out that, and I put a lot of attention on this last week, May 2nd was the first date that it happened. Um, but the new quarterly refunding announcement came out and it showed that even though they had planned on borrowing $66 billion in Q2, which again, was a very, very small number. Um, they reduced that to negative $26 billion. So in fact, this quarter, our net issuance is going to be negative. That means we're going to actually retire some of the country's indebtedness, which means supply is lower. And so I looked at that when it came out at 3 o'clock on Monday uh, before the Fed and got very bullish, very quack quick. I was flat going in and really expected that to have a major impact. Um, two days later, they announced the details. And interestingly, they reduced coupons, but because they still had 
um, um, so little to finance, they really cut bills issuance. And so bills issuance is now, you know, substantially negative. And coupon issuance was uh, higher than I expected, even though the total issuance was much lower than anyone had expected two days earlier. Then the market started cratering soon after that weird spike on on um, Powell um, um, saying 75 was off the table that reversed the next day. Because, in my view, there's once again a reason to front-run quantitative tightening after that quarterly refunding announcement. So I think that was a very subtle issue. But if you caught that, you could have traded a very wide range effectively. So what do you think that signals about um, Janet's intentions here? I mean, she had an opportunity to, um, you know, just, just issue less and instead, she she decided to introduce some very subtle yield curve um, management. So, what direction yeah. so I don't did she did she I don't, try to ma- no? Okay, yeah, I don't think she was really intentional in this way. In that coupons still came down a lot, about a hundred billion from the prior quarter, and that's a lot less coupons. But she was more concerned of the proper functioning of the yield curve and still wants supply out there and QT hadn't been specifically dealt with. So I think at the high level, she reduced coupons. She didn't reduce them anywhere near as much as she could have. And the most important thing is she's now, and this is a, this is a war chest building idea. Um, when you reduce bills, that means the money markets are starved for assets. Where do they go when they need assets and bills aren't available? Well, they go to deposits typically. Um, they don't go out the yield curve or buy equities or anything. They need short-term money because their clients may redeem at any moment for their money. Um, so they can put money at banks, but banks um, a year ago were told they didn't that the Fed didn't want them to suck up the deposits anymore when they didn't extend the um, supplemental um, leverage requirement. Um, And so what's happened is all of that money has now gone into the reverse repo program of the Fed. And Mm -hmm. so that number is now two trillion, just shy of $2 trillion. And those are people that want bills and can't get them. And so to me, that is a war chest that can be tapped at any time um, that Yellen has. Um, she's already paying the interest too. Um, the Fed pays essentially um, Fed funds. It's not exactly, but essentially Fed funds. And so is now paying 75, 80, 90 basis points on the RRP facility. Um, and that money is paid by our taxpayers. The Fed, it flows through to the tre- from the treasury. And so, and that's higher actually than what bills are paying. So she could issue bills and pay less. Um, so it's very, uh, it's, it, I haven't yet figured it out, but it's definitely a war chest, which could be. Unleashed. Well, I guess there's a couple of different reasons, right? Like, um, well, not, I'm sure there's more than two, but one is obviously, is she concerned about um, potential deficit? Um, oh, what do they call it? Um, when they put a cap on debt issuance, they go through this sure. battle every 
Sure. Yeah, because, the sorry, debt ceiling? Is she worried, the debt ceiling, the yeah. Debt so is she okay. worried about maybe more, more battles there? And is she also trying to maybe the prepare for QT? What's that? I think the TGA addresses fear of a, uh, <clears throat> a um, change in the composition of Congress and more difficulty getting budgets passed and um, debt ceilings um, um, increased. So I think the TGA, the right. TGA staying large is, is preparing for such a thing. Um, the RRP, the only way they can tack, um, get that is by issuing. Um, and they don't need the money. That's the interesting thing. As long as nominal growth continues to be higher than their nominal cost, cost of interest, which is like 2% now, we will see a, without additional deficit spending, budgetary deficit spending, we'll actually continue to see a reduction in the net supply of, of bonds that the government issues. Um, and so it's, it's an interest, we're in an interesting point. They, they, they have all this $2 trillion dollars, um, they have the Fed that is, you know, rolling off its holdings, and yet they continue to issue coupons to finance a falling deficit. At some point, that's going to run out, and that um, and that um, that will be a meaningful um, turn potentially. Inflation better be low by then, because releasing any of this um, pent up um, money that into, um, to suck up bills and reduce coupons would have an asset inflation and thus wealth effect impact. So she has to be really careful when she pulls that lever that, you know, inflation's in our rear view mirror. Um, but who knows when that'll be? I think you can keep very close track of it and know. And I think that's why, that's the signal. That's the, the flow information that I think is dominating markets since COVID bottom. And this is gotcha. now the element, this is now the trans um, transmission mechanism. The Fed has said what they're not going to buy, and that's unlikely to change in the near term or even in the long term. Um, and so it all depends on issuance. And the impact so of that. Walk it forward. Is, walk it forward to September, October. Um, yeah. And, and let's, let's assume that inflation stays uncomfortably high. What options does the Treasury have at that point? Well, again, I think it's um, anything they do to reduce coupon issuance is good for assets, good for bonds and stocks, um, good for all weather, good for risk parity, good for 60-40, good for savers. Um, and uh, is not good for inflation fighting. So I think that'll be dependent on um, the balance that she strikes between um, damage in, of the in the in the markets and um, it's you know trying to assuage that damage if she chooses to will um, make it harder to deal with inflation. So I, I, you can't tell; you just have to watch the levers. Um, what happens after the election? Sorry. What happens after the election, right? Because, I mean, at the moment, um, the, the Treasury, Janet, is navigating a, a complicated political path, right? Where, like you said earlier, they, they want to keep inflation low. They know that inflation is politically unpopular, but so is a stock market crash, right? right. So um, once the election 
is over, obviously her, the number of degrees of freedom she has at her, at her disposal <laughs> should increase dramatically, right? Like they, they should yeah. have more flexibility to pursue yeah, I don't, a more direct agenda. Yeah, I, it's it's certainly possible um, that, um, so I think what I would, um, so I have no idea about politics. I'm not a political guy. Um, I don't have any predictions regarding who or who should or who shouldn't be making these decisions. I just try to pay attention to what they're doing. Um, no, I guess, I, think, I guess just, just to press pause, I guess I, think it's fairly- I, I heard like Janet was on, um, she was out with some PR just last week saying that, that she felt that asset prices were still too high. Right. Yeah. So I, I, I think that her bias is she wants to contain inflation and she will sacrifice asset prices to do so, but she won't do that aggressively before the election for political reasons. After the election, well, I don't know about that. Kind of I, could easily, I could easily make the case that I think that um, if you've written off 2022, you're better off crashing the market and ahead of the election and having it recover into 2024. I, I don't know. Right. I just, I mean, that's just, but I made it up, but it seems like a reasonable potential strategy. No, no, fair enough. And so what should we be watching in terms of her messaging, but also in terms of um, their, um, their, their bills and coupon issuance over the next quarter or two to help us divine some signal about, um, right. which path and, they might want to take. Right. So I think the highest thing to do, and it's something that most macro shops do systematically, um, is to uh, pay attention to the um, potential, the spending versus the uh, revenue, um, because that ultimately drives issuance. Um, and so you need to look at Every single coupon that's coming due, every single bill that's coming due, knowing those need to be refinanced because our debt isn't falling. And then you need to know how much new money is coming. And so that's the that's the number one signal I look at as it relates to this topic. Um, and in regular times, you know, it really is extremely important uh, because you aren't having massive fiscal policy and then massive fiscal cliffs happening, you're having more steady debt financed activity nonetheless, but um, it tends to be more steady and the revenues tend to be more steady um, or have been more steady in, in um, you know, low inflation, low growth environments like we've been in for many, many years. Now it's quite volatile. And so paying attention to what, being able to predict how much issuance they're going to announce is better than knowing, uh, um, than um, waiting till they announce it. So that's one thing. And then the issuance side, I think you have to, I would just describe it as, um, and my company is named Damp Spring for a reason. Um, I have both a spring, like a car has a spring and a shock absorber. I think Janet's in the position of having both a um, cap where she's writing a call and a put where she's selling a put um, to dampen volatility in both ways. Whereas the Fed really at the moment only has written a call. And so they're pressing on markets. That's their entire agenda. Um, And markets have reacted to that pressing. Should they react more? I, I think markets are volatile, but 
Um, they got the main direction from last six months ago. Um, and I don't know what the strike is, but at some strike, Janet's going to, you know, shift away from coupons as her, because that's her lever to um, dampen the downside. But right. it's, so I basically, so you can almost think of it in that way as, um, you know, how much pain is the Fed, is the treasury, is the administration going to take um, before they um, do, pull a lever? So let me just unpack that for, for people and it'll help me to understand it as well. So I think what you're saying is the Fed has already committed to putting pressure on liquidity and asset prices, but the treasury has an opportunity by the rate of issuance and the duration of issuance in terms of like where they issue along the curve, where if they issue fewer coupons, then that will support bond prices and lower rates and be supportive of asset prices. If they issue uh, fewer bills and more coupons, that'll put pressure on bonds, higher rates, higher mortgage prices, lower asset prices, right? So that's those are the levers. Direction, would, yeah. Those are the levers, but I would say that she doesn't have control of how much issuance. That is right. the economy that and 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 spending, which seems to me to be very much gridlocked. Um, she obviously has the ability, if she could pass a spending bill, she has the ability to stimulate, but politically there's no ability to get it through Congress. So that lever she can't pull. So the issuance is going to be whatever the economy creates. But the lever you mentioned in terms of the, the composition of whatever issuance is done is her lever, and she has two interests to weigh. Right. And what about stuff like and cash right now, clear which way she And right now it's clear which way she lay, is laying, which is um, she is uh, singing from the same hymn book as the Fed. It, which is we're going to continue to put pressure on asset prices. Yep. And inflation is, our, is our, the only thing we care about. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, so day to day, I mean, are these the primary things you're watching? And it, what, what else are you keeping a close eye on as as impacting um, your day to day trading? Right. So there's this is the thing that um, that, um, you know, the big, big lesson that I take that I've learned in my career is that there are um, people who are. Uh, really, un really understand all the things we just talked about in, in great depth. Um, can predict growth, can predict inflation. Are what is commonly called economists, and then there are people that trade markets. And um, there is something that's lost in translation when you don't have breadth and depth in all in the whole picture. And so, what I try to do is um, is is offer that broad picture and at a level of depth that because I've done all of the various jobs that we just talked about, I hope I can add value. That's my value proposition is, is doing all those things. Um, and so that's what I try to do every day. I'm both being a, an economist and also looking at, you know, very specific, even at the security selection level detail of trading strategies. 
and trying to put together a, you know, a best portfolio that, um, and a, you know, a synthesis that isn't wishy-washy, you know, people can predict that growth is going to be lower next year, next, next um, quarter, but you have to connect it with what's priced in. And it's an unusual, and, and people that are very focused on, you know, portfolio managers in particular, really sort of get an understanding of what's priced in, but may not connect it well to um, what the actual economic outcome will be. And economists struggle to um, make money with their predictions because they don't connect it to what's priced in. And so, you know, that's what I'm trying to do every day. So can you, are you able to articulate at all some of the steps that you go through to try and connect those dots, to connect the kind of macro themes to actual trading tactics and the trades that you recommend and put on? Sure. Um, So I use, so I come from a firm, Bridgewater was a firm that had 99.8% of its positions were um, built because of a um, wide set of systematic indicators on everything that could drive a securities price. Security selection was actually not a big deal for them. Um, and they didn't even trade certain asset classes and still don't trade certain you know, generic asset classes. Um, so ideally, I'd have signals that breadth and depth. Obviously, as a one-man shop, I don't. So I try to systemize what I think matters um, and have signals for each asset class. Um, Then um, I also spent a lot of time at Brevin, and I would say that Brevin did no systematic trading. It was purely discretionary. Um, And they were really deep experts at um, how security selection for trade expression, using options, using volatility products, using derivatives, using swaps, using swaps, using everything you could imagine, barrier options, everything you could imagine to express a particular view. Um, and so um, as a derivative specialist for most of my career, I do, um, every one of my trades is, um, trying to optimize both a directional view and a um, option volatility um, structural path view. So um, that's my process. I look at the systematic indicators and I would say that um, um, the current discussion that we spent most of the time on is not systemized because there hasn't been enough back history to systemize anything like this. So that's where I'm I'm looking at discretionary information. And then I keep, you know, I have many different metrics for pricing. Um, What's priced in the highest level one I think is risk premiums, which I don't particularly care about the level of risk premiums. um, But I do care and, and track things that indicate that risk premiums are changing. And so that could be, that is, um, credit spreads, volatility, volatility surface, um, positioning, um, which is always- Like caught positioning type stuff? What's that? How how are you measuring position, like caught data? Yeah. 
Cot data has a lot of limitations. In fact, the best information I can give to people is that COT is for commodities and financial futures. You're much better off if you go to what's called the, the um, same same producer of data, but the traders in financial futures, which has, I think, better data for that. Um, but that's one. You know, there's so many. The thing that we just talked about is positioning data. You know, knowing right. exactly how many treasuries are going to run off in May, in June and how much buying is still going to be done, even though QT is happening. And where that likely will happen is a flow and positioning basis. Um, right. And then, you know, some of the, you know, the you can get... So I'm constantly looking for information. I'm not adequately systemized to say, hey, go and do this. Um, but I'm looking at... Um, you know, one of the big things on Twitter that I've spent a lot of time on is um, extreme, an extremely large collar that has been um, rolled every quarter. So something as simple as looking at that for S&P flow. Um, and then I have models for um, what I would call rebalancing flows. Um, um, a lot of people pay a lot of attention to month-end and quarter-end rebalancing. Um, I uh, I don't. I, I certainly pay quite a bit of attention, but it's not my primary focus. My primary focus is to understand when it is likely various portfolios will re- require rebalancing. Whether it happens at month end or not depends on the characteristic of their benchmarking, but you want to know when you know, the 60-40 portfolio is 65-35. You want to know that, even if it's not month-end. Right, so, because um, many institutions will have a, a band of tolerance that they will that, that they will rebalance at. Right? And so that would be a trigger for a rebalancing event, even if it's not at, you know, some important calendar date. <clears throat> right. And so you're looking at margin. Um, one, of my, one of the things I think of um, for... Um, so, and I also look at momentum. I look at mean reversion, just price data, which, you know, I think you need all of these little tiny bits of alpha to generate enough alpha to actually position. And so that's what I'm trying Preach. to build up. Um, and that's, you know, that's each day I'm trying to improve that bit. Um, but for instance, um, you know, I think we're in a world in which, um, um, it's really important to know how an investor is experiencing the markets. Right now, most investors are still up from right. almost any horizon except the last six months. So there is quite a bit of resilience, I would say, in the average unlevered portfolio. But if you look at portfolios that are levered, things like hedge funds that are, you know, long, short hedge funds um, who have had poor performance and have had extra poor performance lately, you would expect certain deleveraging trades. And so I'm also sourcing performance and both in the short term and long term and then looking at leverage. But then there's also just general government flows, things like um, the tick data, things like the balance of payment data. All are important to understand currencies and all are what I'm not doing, which 
I've had a chance to look at some of this stuff. What I'm not doing is using a lot of alternative data. Right. Just haven't found the the utility in that yet. Um, we've we've got about four minutes left, and Andy, I want to, I want, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that because I mean, obviously, the vast majority of people don't have the time or inclination or um, or background to be able to follow um, your newsletter and your and your trading um, recommendations um, for you know for for most people how. How would you recommend that they sort of position a core portfolio here, right? Like, I mean, I mean, not like you should diversify, but like on the ground, what what are some some kind of take home ideas that people can actually use today? What kind of what kind of funds would you buy? What type of asset classes would you want to own? Um, how would you want to think about weighting those different asset classes and or strategies? What are some strategies maybe that are that are well suited to this type of environment that you kind of see going forward any any insights there that um, kind of people on the ground yeah. can can run with i'm going to give the i'm going to give the stock answer which is i don't know which way markets are going over the long term and i don't think anyone does and so because of that you need to have balance and so a portfolio with a fair amount of bonds both inflation linked and regular nominal bonds an allocation to stocks, an allocation to commodities, an allocation to gold is an essential portfolio, and every everybody should have a portfolio that is broadly like that. Um, and that should be levered to one's ability to take on risk, because for at least the next year, maybe two, could be three, the Fed and the and the Fed primarily, but also potentially the U.S. government and the global central banks are not asset holders' friends. The problem is that cash is even worse, that cash is massively underperforming and losing purchasing power. Um, And so it does, there is a bit of me that says you should look for a purchasing power portfolio. Now, what that would be would be something like um, five-year tips, which aren't going to move much due to the change in real interest rates, but are really going to pay you the inflation that happens and thus keep your purchasing power Um, and hard assets. Um, Not hard assets that often get levered because those like housing is going to suffer as it's just another levered asset. Um, But um, there's a bit of me that says you should begin to at least consider um, a portfolio that is, that really is designed specifically for purchasing power. Now, the good thing is you don't have to jump from 60, 40 to owning five year tips and gold. Um, buy 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 a little bit of gold, buy a little bit of tips and start, transitioning your portfolio to one of balance versus what you have would be my, you know, my number one recommendation for, you know, again, not financial advice, but my number one recommendation for the average investor is begin the transition to a balanced portfolio that's better designed to protect your purchasing power. All right. A a truly balanced portfolio that addresses the inflationary impulses that is a pretty massive blind spot to the typical portfolio today, sort of where the the average individual might sit at this moment in time. 
Right. But kind of a know, permanent portfolio, move, move a all weather yeah. type, type bias. Yeah. Right. <clears throat> Every step in that direction is, and, and it's, and it, I think the other thing to stress here is it's not too late. You know, I think there's a fair bit of complacency and sort of that, as you, as you mentioned, Andy, that, um, confidence that maybe it's going to get better. You know, every other pullback that we've had has actually healed itself and we've gone to new highs, but it's a right. pretty significant change in the regime that's, that's occurred. Um, and it's, it's, it's just headwind. not too late. This headwind's not going away. The headwind's right. not going away. Right. We could go, we could go up. I think we will go up five, 10% in the next month or two. I'm fairly constructive on assets. In fact, my portfolio is pro assets as big as it's ever been um, since uh-huh. the, since 20, um, since the um, COVID lows. Um, and so I'm optimistic in the short term, but the headwinds are blowing and they're not going to change until inflation is s- turned. And so, you yeah, know, that's. And, and the sad part is the, the emotional pull o- over the next while. I, I generally agree with you that we've reached some sort of critical selling point, and there's lots of maybe indicators that suggest, you know, that might ease a little bit. Um, those sort of portfolios and those persons are going to feel relief in that 10% rally, which is not going to get you anywhere near the highs, and it's going to give you confidence to stay the course where you should be using those um, those re- reversionary spurts to rebalance, to take the opportunity to spread those assets across more inflation protection type assets that you've alluded right. to. Not necessarily go to cash because again, right. cash is not going to protect you if you're if inflation does in fact keep persistently high, as I think you said um, earlier. Cash isn't going to do it, so you need to find some other asset when you have an opportunity to sell these other these assets that are not going to help you. And I think as the inflationary volatility um, sort of continues and persists, you're going to see asset prices have to reflect higher future expected returns in order to justify that increase in just the inflationary volatility, which means you have to have lower prices today in order to get there. Right. So future volatility. Yeah. Future volatility is one of my key concepts in um, what drives risk premiums besides the availability of money and credit. If we are in a regime in which volatility persists, um, assets are going to struggle. Yeah. All right, Amazing. we're going to have to put a pin in it there. This has been absolutely fascinating, yep. Andy, even better than I had hoped. Thank you so much for sharing so much really unique wisdom. Um, where can people find you? So my website is uh, dampspring, D-A-M-P-E-D, spring.com. Um, and follow me on Twitter at, at dampspring. Yeah, Love absolutely. it. And we'll be sure to have you back on too. I can't wait to actually uh, bring you back and a quarter or two. I was trying to talk about my outlook on currencies today and we got, we got uh, in the muck. So maybe one day we'll talk about currencies because I think we're at an interesting uh, inflection point on what has been an amazing King dollar story. Oh, that's great. a great teaser. Okay, what a we'll teaser. Have to fast yeah, track that. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> love it. Love it. Love it. Um, all right. Well, look, we'll, we'll put a pin in it there. 
Thanks again, Andy. And um, have a great weekend, everybody. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, right. Thanks for Appreciate joining it. us. Cue the music. Thank you for listening to the Gestalt University podcast. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode by visiting investresolve.com forward slash podcasts. We also encourage you to engage with us on Twitter by searching the handle at investresolve. If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email or social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that this podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again, and see you next time.